Welcome to In The Figure It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast that uh, today is our Chicago special as we're at Forex Network Chicago and we're lucky Galen Stops as always editor of P&L was with me, Colin Lambert um, and we're joined by two guest podcasters um, this year, John Crouch from Ideal Prediction and Brandon Premack from uh, 360T. I thought Brandon would kick off with you actually, I mean you, know, you were both speakers today. Um, we spoke a lot around execution quality, and there's inevitably a focus on flash events. But what are we? Where do you stand on terms of how we're actually measuring execution quality generally? Yeah, so we we did discuss what happens when markets get hectic, but I'm very interested in what happens in the day to day. And I think the comments I made were, "What makes someone top of book?" And my opinion is, um, I see less and less what I would consider LPs generating prices off of alpha. And many are just chasing the last update. So to look at an LP and say, what's your average spread throughout the day is only one piece of the pie. You know, we are always looking at hold times and markouts and fill rates because just being there really is not a measure of how quality no. you are. And the, the 90, 90 plus percent of the time is what defines the LP, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's one of those things you look at it and say, well, you know, point I've made a couple of times today is, oh, we were in throughout the market. Yeah, you were, but you could drive like three two-ton trucks through your price. Is that necessarily right. being a good LP? And I've seen it on a, you know, on a daily basis. I see LPs rejecting clients on a five millisecond old quote. You say to yourself, your pricing engine made that price. In the real world, you'd have to eat it. In FX, you get to walk away from it. And how much Two updates later, would you have made money? Would you have accepted it? There has to be some acknowledgement of what is creating my next quote. Yeah. John, from mine, obviously you've got a background in HFT as well as bank e-trading. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, how do you view that? So uh, I've looked at a lot of this refined data, and it's amazing how different each bank is. Mm. You know, you look at the the streaming quotes from a specific bank, and they'll be very strong in Eurodollar. Uh, you have to look at, just like Brandon was alluding to, you have to look at the spread, you have to look at these reject rates. Are they, are they really going to be there in volatile markets? But then each bank has their own specialty, and they may be very, very kind of, you know, not great in G4, and they're amazing. They'll the never app. admit that, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps. But when you look at the data, you see, you see why a market exists. It's not that everyone is the same across the entire board. They have their specialty. They have their, their secret sauce. And they're very good liquidity providers in certain things. Mm. And to, to your point about um, you know, spreads widening out to such a degree when it's a stress market that is it really liquidity, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with LPs saying like, and you mentioned something like, oh yeah, no, we saw, you know, everybody kind of pulled out and wasn't really pricing probably pretty Brexit, but you know, we were there. Yeah. We were, we were pricing. Our spreads weren't crazy. I mean, obviously they widened out, but you know, we were good. Right. Yeah. So I think if that was true, then, uh, you know, Brexit would have been a very different event in the FX market. Yeah. I mean, I think the Brexit night, I mean, obviously I was sitting in my desk in Australia while the results were coming in and it moved very quickly, but actually I, I still view that as an orderly move. Yeah, that, that was a genuine reaction on the part of the market to a genuine event. Right, and, right. yeah, there were price points traded most of the way down. And the LPs, I think, did stand up. But I think it's because they knew that something was going to happen. It was a well, known One way or the other, something was yeah, going to Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, to, to Brandon's point, it's, it's, it's a lot... 
it's the guys that will actually there 90% of the time. If they can then hang in there and provide decent pricing during the events, that what, that's what really builds loyalty. And that's what makes them probably move up your um, your ladder. Of course. Of- well, we do this. So we find that 30% of trades end in a, with two LPs showing the same price. Yeah. So we internally prioritize based on fill rates, reject rates, hold times, and markouts. So we will prioritize the LP that performs yeah. more often than not. We give each quote a score. So we actually do that. So rewarding good behavior. You're rewarding good behavior. Yeah, I guess that's that's a more positive way of doing it, isn't it? Right. I'm quite fascinated because I'm in... As someone who's a real fan of Last Look, I'm oh, no, sorry, that's not me, is it? No, it's somebody else. Um, I, it's quite fascinating to hear someone from a platform talk about actually, you know, trying to remove Last Look. Yeah, so all Last Look is not created equal, right? I mean, if you're a bank pricing a client, a human being via an internet connection, there has to be a little bit of leeway, right? We yeah. have to give an LP some margin for error. We have to accept that. Yeah. But what I see are a lot of things. I see laddered pricing. So an LP might be showing a 135 and saying, you can sweep me with other banks and you can sweep my ladder. Yeah. Inducing a click with an aggressive ladder, knowing by the time we go for the five, if the market has moved, if they've gained the information that they needed, they can pull the rug out. And these are the sort of things where I really do say these, this behavior needs to be penalized. Like, we 360T are we do not we do not limit last look. Yeah. But I do speak to my clients about it, and we are very forthcoming about data, hold times, rejection rates, even on the band level. Mm. And I think this is an important thing to dig into. So, so this actually, I had a panel earlier today uh, with a number of platform providers on that, and I posed the question: To what extent? Do platforms have a responsibility to to police the activity on them, especially in light of the global code? Um, there was a lot of splitting of hairs. Oh, people people didn't did like they, the word policing. Yes, it did, um, yeah. did any of them actually put their hands up to this? Because that would be a rarity. Um, <laughs> no, so, so, I mean, there didn't seem to be... Uh, no one held up their hand and basically said, yes, we have a responsibility. As you know, They talked about there being a lack of trust. The question was, is that part of your job to stand up there and create an environment that people can trust, that that behavior will happen a certain way. So my job, as I see it, is to go to the LPs with statistics, showing them in like the example I gave that, by the way, you're showing this price on a 5 million band of mechs and, you know, 30% of the time you're rejecting. That's not real liquidity. Mm. And if you're not going to change, I'm going to make the client that asks me about it, or even the ones that right that I do a weekly, monthly review because we're very involved with our active takers. They're going to understand this. It's their choice whether they want to keep you in or not. I'm not going to remove you. This is like this is the disclosed piece. Right. Obviously, the GTX anonymous piece is completely different. Yeah, yeah. But I'm going to empower the client with whatever information they need to know. Okay. Well, so I have an interesting point about that. Perhaps one of the interesting aspects of this is if you go to the trader who is in charge of the automated system, they might say, we have zero last look at all, and we accept all the trades. And I helped an ECN look at some of these stats, some from the inside, and we heard that story. I'm like, that's really confusing because you are rejecting 20% of your trades. Like your firm is. That's just as factual. And so there's kind of a philosophical decision about if it's rejected by the gateway, 
rather than the central brain logic, mm. is that is that labeled as last look, even though it's still impacted as Brandon sees it from the acceptance rate. So mm. who's who's actually right? What is the actual real acceptance rate? And was last week employed at all? Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're doing it at the gateway, you could argue that that is probably. I mean, it depends where the gateway sits, doesn't it? Yeah. But you could argue that I mean, if that gateway sits, you know, before it actually reaches the LP, then that's perfectly acceptable. It's, it's, like, it's like platform. I mean, like you know, fast match when they were fast match did this, and we all they introduced this last look window that said, okay, you know, we'll uh, we'll we will police this ourselves, and right. if it's you know if it's moved without outside our um, parameters, then the trade's rejected. The LP doesn't see it. The LC just gets a message saying your trade wasn't done. Um, you know, we call it last match. <laughs> this is what you do. But I, I'm interested in in your point there, Brandon, because I think we're taking too we're taking too aggressive approach sometimes to the sell side providers because. There are times, and you know, John, you'll attest to this. There are times when it's actually client behaviour that induces the rejects. It's the client yes. aggressing, yes. too aggressively sweeping. You know, and this aggressive. was a comment made today on one of the panels. Um, it doesn't take long to see if it's a client or not, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't take very much anal analytics to see if it's a client splitting tickets, sweeping. Mm. In theory, there is nothing inherently wrong. With a client no. sweeping 10. No. But you get to the prisoner's dilemma. The, we've talked yeah, yeah. about this regurgitate right many times. If you have different LPs with sweepable streams with different motivations, that's what creates a problem. And so I do have these discussions with banks. And I say, well, why would you make such an aggressive price on a sweepable stream? You're creating your own difficulties. Mm -hmm. show, the la show the full amount stream with a tighter price back off or reduce the liquidity on the sweepable stream. If the client is then splitting tickets, it becomes so quick to dissect that mm. and you widen or turn off and you just say, this is not the kind of behavior I want to accept from a counterparty. Mm. John, I mean, are you okay with that? I mean, from when you were in, in an HFT shop, I mean, obviously you probably, if you're trading FX, you probably saw a few rejections in your time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how I put it, <laughs> delicately. Yeah, that, that got me down a whole rabbit hole. Yeah. I, mean, I, was, I, I came from uh, treasuries. Yeah. And so I was like, wait, you can back out of a trade? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that came up after I ended, after I stopped trading. Right. And and I, I was genuinely mystified. And like, hang on a second, so you can make a price and then say no. If I'd have done that to my old voice brokers, they would have been outside in a transit van with crowbars. That's right. Waiting to greet me as I walked out of the office. I mean, it's just quite a remarkable... Yeah, you would be able to do it one time and one time only. Do, do you know what? I love all this talk about kind of last look. I did a, um, a debate today on whether latency mechanisms, uh, asymmetrical... Uh, latency mechanisms will impact derivatives liquidity. And I, I referenced one of the exchanges that's introduced such a mechanism. As soon as I got off the panel, the first thing, one of them comes up to me, a representative goes, uh, it's actually not a speed bump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of nuance around language issues. Right, right, right. Yeah. 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 They call it like a, a latency diff, a differential mechanism or something. That's good. It's, yeah. uh, <laughs> There's the randomizers. There's yeah. genuine speed bumps. There's minimum lifespans. It's, you know, we're, we're trying all we can, and I guess what we're trying to avoid here is get into, and, and I think this is what's quite ironic when you get so many people in the listed space preaching to the foreign exchange market about how it should be. And what they're actually doing is actually introducing mechanisms in FX designed to actually take away some of the advantage of speed. I, 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 John, I mean, why, why are people hiring tower climbers? 
why are people trying to like talking about neural satellite networks now to take you know, to to be able to trade that quicker quicker than even microwave? I mean, yeah. is is the, is the is the spend worth what they will achieve in this world? We've got speed bumps. Well, by definition, it is because they've made a lot of money. Yeah, so it's it's obviously. But does the speed does the speed bump or whatever we're calling it? Yeah, does that does that change that dynamic? I, it certainly does. And my concern with that, you know, look, I've, I've had a whole career focused on technology. I went to MIT. Like I. Mm-hmm. Saying I don't believe in technology is ridiculous. Like, I, <laughs> you know, I believe in technology, yeah. and I believe that technology can solve a lot of problems. I'm, I'm not blindly against these mechanisms at ECNs, mm. but not, not at the cost of like sacrificing innovation. So, you know, don't penalize someone just because they're very, very good. Yeah, um, okay. and I- and they're, they're, it's a consolidation of a lot of flow into a few high frequency shops now. But think about what they replaced. They replaced a bunch of phone traders with, mm. you know, that had two phones and one was lagging futures versus spot. Yeah. You know, it's like you've replaced and made efficient um, a huge, huge market. They, they replaced Colin with something better is what you're trying to say. That's not <laughs> I'll, take a, I'll take a different angle to this and say something I said on the panel before, that as we make it a market, it's, let's focus on spot, right. and we make it a market of ones, in my mind, you're lowering the bar. So, yes, technology is a game changer, but does that make somebody a market maker? So mm-hmm. you have somebody dealing in ones. It opens the door to so many different providers that can make them a price in one. But what are they doing with that one? No, that's right. Right. That's what right. is the yeah. what is the if everyone yeah. over 100 unique LPs won a trade on 360T in August in the Americas? That number blows my mind. Mm. that there aren't a hundred unique liquidity providers. It's hot potato, right? And yeah. once we get away from the world of ones, that's where you're, you're cutting your teeth. That's where you're making markets. This is who I want to be dealing with. And to me, I am not against technology, but the guys that with the fastest technology are, are the ones in my opinion, that are simply the fastest to flip a buck. And mm. it, the BIS, the BIS survey showed us a lot of its noise. I don't really know what it does. 360T is unique in that we have so much economic transactional effects happening. You made the point today. If the corporate wants to RFS 50 million, that's how he wants to deal. Let him deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 50 yeah. million creates a skew. That skew yeah. creates information leakage, which creates 300 million of HFT trading. Is it good? Bad? I'm indifferent. Right, I'm indifferent to that. Mm. But that 250 million additional volume has nothing to do with anything. It is simply a churn enabled yeah, by the voice. As an owner of, a, of an ECN, it's probably considered good. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, in, I'm indifferent yeah. to yeah, that. It's like in the moral high ground here. I'm flying Yeah, but don't get rid of the volume, right? But, but, but talking about the volume, I haven't, and this was brought up in the first panel, I haven't met, I don't think, one person today who believes no, the no. BIS numbers that came out at 6.6. I, I asked for a show of hands in a room of probably 300 people, and I, don't, I think one hand went up. And I think it was Julie's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, she's a gullible journalist, what can I say? Um, but, but, but then where did we get this figure from? Did they just pull it out of a hat? Um, no, I mean, I think they got, I mean, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of internal trading within the bigger organizations that gets counted. Um, they, 
I mean, I had uh, an interesting discussion with uh, one of the panellists who said, actually, no, they do double count the volume it says. And I said, well, actually, no, what it says is they adjust for double counting. But what they do is they, they do count both sides of a swap trade. So you could argue that is double counting. I would argue that's actually two different exposures. You can break it into a spot and a three-month exposure. Maybe the Tom next. I think that's a whole different ball game. Um, and the vast majority of what we saw is under is under one week. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a genuine number. I just don't think it reflects the business reality most people see. April was a horrible month for just about every platform. I mean, it was. I think it was the worst for eighteen months for the primary venues. And the only ones that were up were those that were very very young three years ago. And so they're in a natural growth cycle. Right. So I think yeah, there, there's some skepticism over it. But no, we have to take it. I mean, you know, it's good advertising, but. I also question whether it's going to make it even worse. Yeah, so Brandon's going to go and see his buy-side clients. He's going to be like, well, hang on a second. My execution quality is not that great. Well, yeah, because liquidity can be a, you know, a bit indifferent now and again. But hang on a second. It's a $6.6 trillion market. And then it becomes a tiresome conversation. You know, so, I th- yeah, I, s- I don't know. I mean, it's nobody believes it. You're quite right. But I, I don't think we have a better alternative. We don't have a better measure. I mean, what, what does it really matter, though? I mean, you know, the, yeah. the number of higher or lower, like, yeah. what do we do different? Yeah, it's a shed load. That's <laughs> no. all we need to say. <laughs> Whatever you want to get done, if you're lucky enough yeah, to do it at the right time of day, you will get it done. Right. Uh, the other thing I wanted to sort of touch upon is the other another central theme of the day, and get your thoughts on that, is um, like the regulation global code piece. Right. Um, we've had a session <clears throat> around that, but uh, we kicked off this morning with um, someone saying, well, actually, if you look at what happened in repo markets last week, and the immediate impact in WebEx swaps, that was a function of regulation and credit. Yeah. Um, and we ended the day talking about you know, how regulation, I mean, you mentioned there, John, about innovation. Is regulation going to kill innovation? Not, it's going to change innovation, and it will have uh, various pauses. So one of the things you saw when um, a few years ago, uh, you had these, these risk groups, model risk groups at banks. And traditionally, execution algos were not considered models. They got reclassified as models, you know, with the capital M. And what that required was PHE level people, some of my, you know, smartest friends, spending two months per algo, three months per algo, writing a 70 to 100 page document detailing every single aspect of this algo. It turns out, while they had to remediate all that, there were no new algos. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, but that said, are we in a worse state? Well, not really, because through that process, we came up with governance controls, control frameworks within the banks are a lot more standardized. Yeah. They actually have a list of algos now, which, you know, these things are like coding on spreadsheets. So, you know, the innovation that, that comes through that process just may need not be as apparent, and it doesn't have AI as a buzzword, mm. right? But is it better? Yeah, it's definitely better, mm. right? It's more robust and and less likely to blow up the system. So, so I think you got to think through what innovation really means when you think through that. So, yeah. so the direct answer is no. I don't think that that's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. You know, people still care and have ideas, right? Just, I made a slightly controversial point on the last panel. And that was immediately sort of, you know, 
um, let through to the wicketkeeper for those who understand cricket parlance by the panel. Nobody wanted to coin it. I said, like, so if we have a regulation, we immediately have innovators, inverted commas, who look to get around the, the um, regulation. Under a code of principles, the minute you form that committee to get around a regulation, you're in breach of a code of principles because you're actually trying to circumvent something. Um, and I thought that was pretty good. But the question you got on your panel today just beat the hell out of everything. So, that so, was amazing. So we had a, an Ask the Expert session where the, the idea was we just have questions from the audience that drive the conversation rather than Colin and myself moderating. Um, so I was out in the audience collecting. You could either put up your hand or email through. And I had a, uh, a question emailed through from someone who obviously remains name, nameless asking him, um, can you think of some examples of, of stuff that's legally okay to do, but actually ethically unacceptable? <laughs> Which uh, <laughs> got, a, got a bit of a chuckle from the room. Wonderful. <laughs> Welcome to PNL. <laughs> yeah. like, okay. How does that work? Okay, so um, yeah, so and all of a sudden, you know, Galen's emails are being hacked by you know, various authorities to find out who sends it. But, right. but I think we do see in some of the the legal cases we've seen recently where you know people. Have have been, you know, acquitted of any legal wrongdoing. Yeah. I still think if you go and read some of the chat room transcripts, or I know they release choice bits, yeah. um, etc. But there's some of it you'll just say, okay, even if it was legal, I still don't know if I like love yeah. what was being said and kind of the yeah. the attitude. There. Well, I mean, they they got away with it because they were the argument was everyone was doing it, and so therefore there were different standards. And I think nowadays, you know, the standards we we do. And yeah, Brandon made this point, and it was made on the last panel as well. We do hold people to higher standards now, and I think that's a good thing. And we have the data, more importantly, to reinforce that holding to higher standards. You, know, you can go in and have a conversation, Brandon, with your clients and with your LPs, then, okay, they're seeing the same set of data. It becomes less room for you know interpretation. And on the everyone was doing it thing, my favorite story is still on the libel rigging. The one bank, it was like part of their training. <laughs> it was like official, like training at the bank was part of it. Yeah. Which, yeah. Whatever those guys say, just agree. Yeah. <laughs> well, you think about like the heads of risk. So, like, take Chip as an example. Yeah. Chip Barry, right? Very thoughtful and very, very aware of the risks of algorithms. Mm. And if you think of heads of risk 10 years ago, um, I mean, e-trading systems were often referred to as the toy. Yeah, but that you know, it was. EBS was the toy from the minute it, it was launched. Yeah, it was just, it was really kind of like, hey, this is in the corner. It's really not that big of a deal. They're holding less than $10 million of positions. There's no risk. Yeah. What could go wrong? <laughs> uh, one day, one day on this podcast, I will tell the story of my Mark Lear debacle on a Friday afternoon on EBS. Uh, it's uh, well, I think we need to hear something. About that. <laughs> no, I think it's probably taking too long, but it's uh, yeah. Maybe I'll tell you at the reception afterwards. <laughs> but look, you know, you have these heads of risk now who are keenly aware of it, of the algo stuff, and and they're watching it in depth, right? And that's a big change. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you my Mark Lira story. We're playing, we're, we're in, it's Friday afternoon in the trading room at the bank that shall remain nameless. And a couple of guys are coming from offshore, and one of them, bless him, has been a little tired. And he went home and turned his EBS screen off and left his keypad live. And being Friday afternoon, there was a lot of objects being thrown around, and one of them landed on the keypad. And I was responsible for the RM book, 
and I was just sitting there with my feet, literally I was sitting there with the feet up doing a crossword. And all of a sudden our sales desk said like, Colin, what are you doing in Mark Lira? And I'm like, what does it look like I'm doing? With a few added descriptive nouns thrown in. And he went, so-and-so says you're, you're buying Mark Lira. And went, no, it's not me. It must be our you know, offshore office. So I went on direct line, are you buying Mark Lira? No. Okay, well, they wouldn't lie to me. No, it's not us. And he gave me, the, he said, no, he's definitely. So what code's he getting? And he said, and he gave me the code. I went, well, that's, that's the code for the other office. Apart from on EBS. And I looked over <laughs> at the EBS machine, and there was a stack of trades about like a foot high. Yeah. And yeah. what we'd actually done, we put in a bid for 999 million marks that's about 3.30 on a, on a Friday afternoon. But we'd done it at one, the price we put it in at was 1012.01. So literally, it just stood out like a sore thumb. It wasn't even sold. And, and literally, I'm going like, what the hell do I do now? How much have we bought? We're going, how much have we bought? Where is it? We go around looking at all the screens and we found this screen turned off. You know, this is, I mean, it's operational risk wow. 101. Wow. And, and I have to say, I mean, under the, under the terms of the global code, I'm not quite sure how this is going to sit. And I'm hoping there's a statute of limitations. <laughs> but I kept the bid in there, called a big market maker in for a price in 300, gave him and pulled the bid. <laughs> That uh, might be caught. Yeah, I was gonna say, that may be slightly less than ethical nowadays. Although, having said that, he called me back later and went, thanks for that, it was great, I made a fortune out of it. I'm like, really? You went, yeah, because I think everyone thought you were buying, and so they were still buying the market up. Like, oh, he okay. knows something. Yeah, signaling risk 101. <laughs> Colin's sitting at his desk with his feet up, in case you're wondering why he doesn't trade anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I, that's a funny one. I mean, John, you, you could probably back this up, and yeah. Brandon, you'll see it on your platform. Trading you know, has often been likened to warfare. It's long periods of boredom interspersed with brief moments of excitement. That's and it's probably even more now in the electronic. Is it, is it more so, do you reckon, in the electronic era? Oh, yeah. I mean, the number of mistakes I've made. I'm, I'm sitting yeah. here laughing at, at yours. But <laughs> the first, one of the first algos I made was at Deutsche Bank in, uh, in U.S. Treasuries, mm. right? And I put a strict limit in the code. No way I could trade more than $1 million. That was the minimum order size. Mm. I'm like, that's it. So I get up there and, and it's kind of feeding, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm looking at another screen, and someone's going, "Hey, you know, someone's buying a lot of fives. Wow, I'm like it's weird. It's like it's happening one million at a time. Like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's crazy." And I look up, I'm like, oh, <laughs> "I'm a seller five. <laughs> That's when you suddenly yeah. rely on your sales yeah, desk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've learned algo controls the hard way. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, do you have these sort of, you know, how concerned do you guys get at 360T about, you know, the, the algo controls? Because more clients are using algos on your platform. I mean, so what we see is, I think it's sort of typical. I'd say the footprint is not growing like wildfire. No, no, that's, I think that's a good observation. Yeah. But the users who are using them, yeah. are using them more and more. They're going yeah. bigger, they're going smaller, they're going EM. Once you get somebody comfortable, this feels like there's yeah. no going back. Yeah. Getting people to do the first one and kind of buy in, is that is the, the leap of faith. And how worried are you about, I mean, I, I, this is not really a problem for you, obviously, but I mean, um, it's a more senior management, business management problem, but how worried do you think a platform should be around a runaway algo happening on there? venue because I mean, there is going to be you know inevitably there will be some taint of the platform where it happens I mean, that's a great question so i mean obviously within 360t gtx we have yeah. the disclosed piece 
with yeah. the anonymous piece. So most of the algo, the order entry is coming from the disclosed, and what we see of the execution is obviously coming through the anonymous. Hmm. We have no idea if we're getting a piece yeah. of it, all of it. You know, some banks will say you can execute the whole thing into this pool. Some we have no idea. So the person that picks up on it first, hmm. that I think you know, you might not even. It might take a while to even understand yeah. what's gone, what has happened. So yeah. by the time we could tell you. I'm not even sure. It's a it's a yeah, great exactly. question, but one that I'm not sure the one platform would get the whole. No, yeah, no. I guess great if there were like an independent firm that could like monitor all this. <laughs> and just see never it. heard of it. That would you be know. that would be <laughs> ideal, John. That would be ideal. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, uh, I guess we walked into that one, didn't we? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, we'd like to thank John and Brandon for coming and joining thank us for you. our insights. Um, we will, Dan and I will be back with a regular podcast on uh, Monday. Um, in the meantime, thanks for listening. <laughs>